Well, as Matt said at the beginning of our service, one of the ideas that we've been trying to engender, particularly the last couple of years here at Rio, is this idea that for the Christian, for the church, spiritually speaking, okay, our annual year, it doesn't begin on January 1, but it begins this weekend, so the first weekend of Advent. And so for the last couple of years, and now again today, we've started our annual study on this particular weekend, and we're going to do that now with a study that we're calling The Gospel Changes Everything. And I thought I'd just spend like two seconds telling you why we chose that title. And here it is, because the gospel changes everything. It really does. And we hope that you come to see that as we move through this. But to help you see that, I want to give to you what it's going to be my working definition of the gospel. So when I say that the gospel changes everything, what do I mean when I talk about the gospel? What I mean is this. The gospel is the good news, and the word gospel actually means good news, so it's real simple math today. The gospel is the good news that God, God the Father, in and through Christ Jesus, God the Son is doing what? Because it's the key. He is making all things new. So the gospel is the good news that God the Father, through God the Son, Jesus Christ, is making all things new. And of course, that begins with us as individuals, does it not? It begins when the Holy Spirit comes to us and He gives us what only He can give us, which is that aha moment. So we hear the gospel hundreds of times, maybe, or maybe we never hear it, and for the first time we hear it, but at some point, the light goes on, and we realize, good grief, there is a God, and He is the source of absolutely everything. Everything I see, everything I am, everything I have, the whole of it comes from Him. He not only is the creator, but as we've been talking about of late, He is the sustainer. He measures out my breaths and heartbeats. He numbers out my days. Everything that I am, all that I have, it is all of it derived. It's derivative. I'm derivative and I'm derived from Him. That's who He is and He's altogether perfect and He's altogether holy. He is Himself the very definition of good. And here's why He created all things, including me and you. To worship Him, to live for Him, and to live for Him in the manner in which He is entitled. That's the catch. Because that's perfect. So like the light goes on and you go, wait a minute, that's God. Whoa, hang on a second. That's how I'm supposed to live? Because I've not been doing that. And what happens when you don't give to someone what you owe that someone? You accumulate something called debt, do you not? And so through all of our self-worship, as we've denied God what we owe Him, which is 100% perfect worship and obedience with the whole of my life, from conception to death, if you will, I'm accumulating a debt with God that I can't pay God. Why can't I pay God? Because it's not like I can all of a sudden work 110%. I can only work at 100%. And every moment I'm at 100%, well, that's just what I owe him already anyway. So we're done. So it's like the Spirit comes and goes, hey, this is who God is. Hey, this is God, what rightly requires. It's what he deserves. Hey, this is how you've lived. Hey, this is your debt that you can't pay. Good grief, now what do you do? You go to the one that you owe the debt to and you ask for mercy. It's your only shot. It's the only option you have. Would you please forgive the debt that I in fact owe you and I can't pay for me? How? At your own expense. And what has he done in Jesus Christ? He's done exactly that. That's it. It is that God the Son through a supernatural conception and birth that we will celebrate in just a few weeks entered into this world as one of us so that as a man of four humans... 
He might live that perfect life and then come to the Father, if you will. And I'll just use myself as an example, but if you trust Christ, this is applied to you as well. And say, you know what? Tom owes a debt. He can't pay. He's undone. And he recognizes it. And he realizes that I have suffered and died to pay the penalty for his debt and that my life is of infinite value. So now here's the deal. Cancel it for him. And the Father will not deny that. Indeed, he's accepted the payment of the Son, and we know that because he raised him from the dead. And so what happens is that God's renewing work begins when the Holy Spirit comes to you and goes, hey, guess what? All of that, actually true, and you go to this Jesus in whom relief alone is found, and you find that relief from your debt. But it doesn't end there. It's not like you then you kind of go, okay, and I'll see you in heaven, you know? And then that's it, right? No, you realize instinctively, intuitively, and even joyfully that you now belong to him. Remember, he created you. Now he's also redeemed you. Your life is his. And the best kind of life to live is the one that is frankly lived for him. And so then what do you do? You learn how to do it. How do you do that? Well, it's what we've been talking about here for the last couple of years. You begin to engage in this rhythm of grace. What is that? It's just the pattern of the gospel. It's realizing who God is. It's then being honest with him about yourself. It's confessing that. It's then resting in his grace and what he's done for you in Christ. And then it's not saying, and then I'll see you in heaven. But instead it's saying, good grief, I need to be saved not just from my sin, but from myself. Lord, teach me how to be the man in my case that you would have me to be, instruct me, give me your wisdom that I might by the power of your spirit and community with my brothers and sisters, this whole new family that I'm given, by the way, through faith in you as well, go out and learn how to live for you. The gospel that saves us, molds us, and shapes us, and makes us, it renews us, and it conforms us into the image of the perfectly holy one who is Jesus, whose image in the end, not yet, we will perfectly bear. It's remarkable. So the renewing work of God begins with us, but it doesn't end with us. It ends, and we're going to talk about this today, with the return of Jesus, at which point all of his renewing work will come to an end, and he will completely, wholly, fully, entirely, permanently, eternally renew absolutely everything. And the question that I want us to deal with today as we enter into this study of the gospel makes everything, it changes everything. The, the question I want us to deal with today is simply this. It is how do I, as a follower of that transforming, renewing Jesus, live my life between this day and whatever day it is that he's going to return? What do I do? And just to use the, the language of the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at in a second, I live my life, you live your life, as those who are spiritually awake to the fact that Jesus exists and that, and that Jesus has gone away and that Jesus is our master and that Jesus is actually going to return and that when he returns, here's how I want to be found. I want to be found doing his work. And what is his work? It's a work of renewal. We go out into the world, guys, filled by his spirit together with one another, instructed and formed by his word, being made into his image through personal worship and corporate worship and so forth, as we engage with his rhythm of grace and we go out into the world to do whatever it is that we're going to do anyway, but to do it as agents of renewal in our homes, in our offices, in our city, and in the world. And I cannot, frankly, imagine a better season of year to talk about all of that than Advent. Why? Because, well, Advent reminds us, first of all, that the Messiah who is Jesus, who was prophesied about, promised to come, actually came. 
and he has promised to come again, so therefore then he'll actually come. But Advent is also that season of the Christian calendar year in which we are called to specifically focus upon the many things in our lives and our families and our community and our city and in the world that, man, we want to see renewed. Wow, we want to see changed. Lord, please bring an end to this. Change this. And part of what I hope you'll see today is that he might want to do some of that work in and through you. So with all that in mind, we begin our study today in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36, where Jesus Christ, standing on planet earth in the flesh, just before he suffers, dies, is buried, is risen, and then what? Returns to the heaven from whence he came. Looks beyond all of those events, and he looks to his second advent, to his second coming, and here's what he says. He says, but concerning that day and hour of my return from heaven to earth, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. He's like, I don't even know what that day is or what that hour will be, but the Father only. In fact, Jesus says, all that I know about that day and hour is that they will, in fact, someday come. And I know this as well, he's going to say here in a second, that since we don't know when that's going to happen, And since, frankly, apart from my people, nobody's going to believe that that's going to happen, well then, when that happens, man, it's going to be a shocker. Like, nobody is going to see that coming. In fact, he says, if you want to know how surprising it's going to be, there's a biblical example of this. He's like, just flip back all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, you know. Go to Genesis chapter 7, Jesus says. Genesis chapter 7, in which we find a faith family who were told to build an ark, an instrument of salvation. And Noah and his family, much to the ridicule of good grief, I mean, come on, everybody in the world who thought they were nuts, in fact, did that in anticipation of a renewing display of judgment. Judgment brings renewal. It's necessary, actually. Jesus says, listen, as in those days, yeah, well, that's going to be what it's like when I come back. He says, for as were the days of Noah, there it is, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, just before the flood, they, meaning the people in Noah's day, were what? Getting ready for the flood? No, they were just going about their everyday business. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah and his family entered into the ark, and there was a lot of laughter at that moment, but not for long. It says, and they, meaning the people of Noah's day, were unaware that their world was about to end, frankly, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And you're like, well, that's uncomfortable. (laughs) And it sure is. even more uncomfortable from this position, right? But think about that for a minute. So, Tom, or what you're saying, I think, is that what Jesus is saying, at least in your opinion, is that... um, The day that he comes, which you've said will be a day of renewal, like he's going to renew everything and then that's going to, I mean, like finally, fully, eternally, all the adjectives you use, all of the, it's the final renewal of everything. Like that day is also the final day of judgment. That's exactly what I'm saying that Jesus is saying. And here's why. It has to be. My goodness, if the world is going to be the world that we long for, there's a lot of stuff that it needs to be rid of. Isn't there? I mean, there just is. 
it presupposes a day of judgment, but not just a day of judgment. And we need to keep that in mind, a day of deliverance, which should give a little urgency, like it ought to light a bit of a fire under us, frankly, because there is an ark, okay, by which you can float safely, just to use the imagery of the flood above the waters of the coming judgment of the Lord, and by which, when the waters recede, you can inherit a renewed world. And what is the ark? It's not a what, it's a who. It's Christ who's paid our debt, who received the judgment for all who claim him. That day is not a day of judgment for God's people. Why? Because of something we've done, because we're smarter than other people. None of that nonsense. Because of what Christ has done alone. That's it. He gets the credit. Nobody else. And our mission is get out there and let people know. But know this, you're going to sound a little nuts, okay? That's going to happen. But know this as well, the Spirit of God makes the lights go on, man. He like awakens people to the reality that the crazy sounding statement that you're making actually isn't nuts. And by the way, that's not just the way that I interpret this statement by Jesus. Far more importantly than that, it's the way the Apostle Peter who was standing there listening to him make the statement interprets the statement. And we know that because he gives us this discourse in 2 Peter 3. Beginning in verse 1, he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Now, who is the beloved here? It's the people of God. That's evident from the first verse of this second letter. So this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, and here's why I'm writing. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm reminding you of something, he's saying, so that you should remember what? The predictions of the holy prophets, which are recorded in the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, which was recorded in the New Testament. He's saying, guys, I'm writing now a second time to remind you of something the Old and New Testament agree on and both speak to. So what is that? Well, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, uh, meaning the last days of the world in which we live right now. And what will they do? Well, they're scoffers, right? So they're going to come with their scoffing, thus the name scoffers, following their own sinful desires. Now, what does that mean? They're motivated to scoff by something within themselves. And what is that? It's a desire for there not to be a God. I love what Aldous Huxley says. I mean, it breaks my heart on the one hand, but it's so honest, I have to appreciate it. He says, listen, I don't want there to be a God. And here's why I don't want there to be a God. Because it frees me to pursue my erotic and political ambitions. Thank you for your honesty. I think we all feel that way at times. Oh, good grief. If he's there, I hope he didn't see this. Really? He says, know this. All right, in the last days, scoffers are going to come. They're going to come scoffing. Thus the name and motivated by something within them that says, man, I don't want there to be a God because if there's a God and he's actually the source of all things, then I owe him my life and I don't want to owe him my life. Honestly, I just want to live it for myself. And they will say what? Well, first of all, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Who's coming? The coming of Jesus. So they'll come and say to us, good grief, this Jesus claimed that he was going to come. And when he came, he would bring judgment upon the world and then renew all things. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's been about 2,000 years now. So what happened? Did he forget? Did he change his mind? But not only that, they will also say this, says Peter, and this is the flaw in their thinking. 
This is what he seizes upon. They will, in addition to that, say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing, just as they were from when? Because it's important from the creation of the world, from the beginning of creation. So then from page one of the Bible, from Genesis one of the Bible, nothing's changed. No judgment, no coming, no cosmic accountability, no renewal of anything. And he's like, oh, hang on a second, time out, because there's chapter seven. I don't know, that's notable, it's memorable. It's Noah. Pretty well-known story. He says that's what they're overlooking. He says these scoffers deliberately, because they don't want that. They don't want to live with that kind of anxiety. They, don't want... they deliberately overlook this singularly important fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by means of what? The Word of God. He speaks it into existence. What chapter is that? It's Genesis chapter 1, page 1, maybe page 2. And they deliberately overlook as well that by means of these, meaning by means of water, hear the word flood, that world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And that's significant, Peter says, because by the same word of that same judgment bringing, renewal bringing God, the heavens and the earth that now exist, the ones that we live in today, are likewise being stored up not for water, but for a different kind of purifying agent. He says, for fire being kept until when? The day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly that really is coming, just like it did in Noah's world, he says. And now he gives a message to us, something for us not to overlook. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, and what is that? That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So like, you know, 2,000 years to us, I mean, that feels like an eternity. And God's like, hey, I don't wear your watch, man. I mean, you know, like I'm not bound by time the way that you are. I don't hear it ticking. I don't feel the, the weight of the years as they wind down. And they wind down faster and faster, so it seems. I'm not trying to get it all done in 50 or 60 or 80 or 70 or 100 or 110 years. It's just very different. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And so then he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return. He's not on vacation. He's not at lunch. And you say, well, then why in the heck is he waiting? Well, here's why he's waiting. He's waiting because he is patient toward who? Everybody? No. But everybody that he ordains to be made to life. Everybody that he has ordained to have the aha moment where all of a sudden it makes sense where it, maybe it isn't so crazy and wow, there is a God and I owe him and I, wow, and I can't pay that and then there's Jesus and he's, he's speaking to those who are believers in his day but those who would become. He was, he's been patient for us is the idea and for all those who come after us and like us find faith in Christ. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return, but is patient toward you believers and to those who will become believers also is the point. Not wishing that any of you or any of us or any of them should perish in the judgment that will inevitably come in the return of Jesus because it has to for the world to be renewed, but instead that all of the people that God is destined to be forgiven and spared from that judgment through faith in Christ who is the true ark of God and like Noah can inherit a fully renewed world, okay, that all of those folks should reach repentance and know that future in that world. So then what is Peter saying? He said, okay, so here's the reason he's delaying. Because he's getting his people on the ark, man, and he just hasn't collected them all up yet. The ark being Christ. 
getting on it being, oh wow, there's a God and I owe him, I haven't paid, I can't pay. Christ has paid, I claim his payment as the satisfaction of my debt. And what he's saying is that as soon as the last person boards through faith, if you will, then the flood, we'll put it in quotes, will come and the world will be renewed. And at that point, here are just a few of the things that will entirely and completely and for forever come to an end. He will bring to an end all corruption, greed, oppression, injustice, degradation, suffering, abuse, massacres, wars, holocausts, sicknesses, pain, death, sin, depression, addiction, selfishness, divorce, and just as an all-in category, and everything else that we in our sinfulness and in our brokenness and in our self-worship, our self-aggrandizing behaviors have introduced into the human existence. And I kind of want to just stop and go, Isn't that what you're longing for? Isn't there something in you that says, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. And in fact, that's what I've been made for. But since nobody knows when Jesus is going to come to do that, and not, well, most don't believe that Jesus is going to come to do that, all right, well, it's going to be a shocker when it happens. And so that theme is what Jesus now continues in verse 40 of Matthew 24. He says, then, meaning on that day of my return, what's going to happen? Well, two men will be working in the field. So they'll be going about their ordinary business is the idea, unsuspecting, when suddenly and unexpectedly, one will be taken, the other will be left, meaning one will be spared from judgment and the other will not. Why? Because one is better than the other, one is inherently more valuable than, I don't know, one has awakened to the fact that God, debt, Jesus, and he's claimed what the Lord has done. That's it. Likewise, two women will be grinding at the mill, doing their ordinary business, when suddenly and unexpectedly one of them will be taken in judgment, the other one left behind and spared because her debt has been paid to the credit alone of Christ. And so then in light of the reality of that and the sudden and unexpected nature of that, what's the question that we're dealing with? All right, well, then how do we live as followers of that renewing Jesus between this day and that day? And for starters, Jesus answers it by saying this, verse 42, therefore, unlike the rest of the world that doesn't believe this is even going to happen anyway, do what? Stay awake. There it is. Stay awake to this reality. Don't forget, don't go to sleep on it is the point. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You just know that he's coming because he has said he's coming. And incidentally, Advent says that he's kept that promise once already. So he'll keep it again. And you know that you want to be found faithful when he returns. And so know this, Jesus says that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. That's the theme. And would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And you say, well, does that mean that I've got to stay up all night, every night, and I can't go to sleep? No, that's silly, right? I mean, of course not. It doesn't mean you can't sleep physically. It means don't fall asleep spiritually. But the analogy is instructive, Why? Because when you go to sleep, what do you do? You dream. So what is a dream? It's a false reality, is it not? I mean, it's not actually real, but it it feels very real, intensely real sometimes to the person who's experiencing the dream, to the sleeper. 
That's why when you have a nightmare, man, you wake up and like sometimes you don't even want to go back to sleep because you're afraid that, good grief, I might re-enter that awful reality. Well, and it's not a reality, it's a false reality, but it feels so real that I don't want to go back there. You know, you wake up sometimes in a sweat, you're stressed out, you cry out sometimes and that's when you wake up. I remember one night, maybe I've said this before, I was sleeping, I'm a light sleeper, you know. It's a, it's a bummer, man. I'm not going to lie. So anyway, so I'm, I'm sleeping and I feel the bed moving and I'm thinking, oh, good grief, what is this? So I roll over and I see Beth and she is sitting up in the middle of our bed and she's doing something and she's all about it. I don't know what she's doing, but man, she is like and eyes wide open, you know, and she's just going at whatever she's working on. And so I, I said, I said um, <clears throat> what are you doing? And she said to me, with a little attitude, okay, like, you know, come on, can't you see? Is the, she said, I'm washing dishes, like, duh, you know, what's your problem? <laughs> and, and I said, well, actually, um, let me tell you what you're doing. I said, you're, you're sitting up in our bed in the middle of the night, dreaming about washing dishes. And she stops, and she looks around the room, and she goes, it's like she set it down. She goes, oh, okay. All right, you're right. You're right. And then, because she's her, her head hit the pillow, boom, she's out again. Meanwhile, I'm wide awake. <laughs> I'm done. Time to go, you know, watch Sports Center. It's like, it's just ruined for me. That's one of the many things that I can't wait to, uh, to be without, frankly. Dreams are a false reality to, that, to the dreamer at least, seem very real. What is the Lord saying? He's like, hey, listen, when it comes to this whole business of my coming back, of you using your life as though it authentically and actually belongs to me, and it's given to you for a purpose, a mission that actually matters, because when I come back, you know, it's, we need to get folks on the ark, and it's real easy to go to sleep. Don't let the fact that it's been 2,000 years, Peter would say, lull you to sleep on the fact that it's actually going to happen and you don't know when it's going to happen. And so then how are you called to live each day? Like maybe this is it. Don't go to sleep on that. 2,000 years? Yeah, you know what? I wear a different watch. And don't let the false realities of this world, the false realities of, of career, of pleasure, of ego, of, of, of distraction, of entertainment, of, of, money, of whatever, of the applause of our fellow men, don't let those things lull you and me to sleep and cause us to forget that we are derivative creatures and that all that we have is derived and given and entrusted to us by a master. Who are we? We're the servants to manage in such a way as to do what? That's to do the renewing work of the Lord while we have time. That, it seems to me, to be the, the point of what Jesus says next, beginning in verse 45. He says, who then is the what? Because this is what we want to be found to have been. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? You're like, I don't know what that means. So he's using an analogy that they would have understood of a master who owns a vast estate, but who's going to go away on a journey. And it's a long journey. We don't know how long he's going to be gone. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone. He doesn't announce when he's going to come back. I'm just going to go. And he takes one of his servants and says, I'm going to place you over my whole household. You are going to run the servants and all of the farms and everything 
everything for me while I'm gone. And my expectation is that you will run them in such a way as to further my purposes. You know my heart. You know my purposes. You know my plans. Conduct yourself accordingly. I'll see you when I get back. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Well, blessed, Jesus says, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes back home. Truly, I say to you, he, the master, will set him, the faithful and wise servant, over all of his possessions. But if the servant is wicked as opposed to faithful and wise, if that wicked servant, he says, says to himself, my master is delayed and like delayed for so long that I've become convinced he's not actually coming back. And so, He begins to beat his fellow servants, evidencing the fact that he has taken ownership of them himself. He stepped into the master's shoes and cast off the servant's title. He's the master now. So he beats his fellow servants and treats them as if they belong actually to him. And he eats and drinks with the drunkards and he uses his master's food and wine in such a way as to say, no, 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 it's actually mine. The master of that servant will what? Will come okay, on a day when he does not expect him because he's not looking for him. He doesn't think it's going to happen. And at an hour that he does not know, and then what? Because it's sobering. He uses this apocalyptic language, this intentionally exaggerated language meant to make a sobering point. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, why will that happen? I mean, why will it be so unpleasant, however it manifests itself, for that particular kind of servant? I mean, like he's, a, he's put in the place of the hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? He's somebody who says I'm one thing, but I'm actually something else. That's what this man has proven himself to be. I say that I am a servant of the master, but everything I do says that I'm a servant of me says that I'm the master. That's the deal. So the gospel is the good news that God in and through Christ Jesus is making all things new. And hey, guess what? Good news. If you'll receive it, that begins with us. When we see God for who he is and us for who we are and the debt that we've accumulated and the fact that we can't pay it. And then having experienced the frank trauma of that, we rush to the relief that is ours and it's total relief through faith in Jesus who laid down his infinite life to pay all of our debt, to purchase our relationship with God, the one that we want and we're made for. And then we enter into this rhythm of grace by which we're molded and shaped and instructed and fashioned and receive the heart of the Savior and become more and more and more like him, imperfectly, but nevertheless. So the renewing work begins with us, but it doesn't end with us. It ends with the return of Jesus. And so what do we do in between then and now? Well, as people are being fashioned into the image of Jesus, we get up and start offering ourselves to him and to his renewing work. Okay, you know, if, if you didn't exist, Lord, I'd live like this today. But since you do exist and I belong to you, let me be wise. Let me be faithful. What does that look like? Well, it looks like me being your renewing agent, consciously moving through life, knowing that when you return, and I don't know when that is, I want to be found to have been faithful and wise. I'm to be your agent of renewal in the world. So empower me to do it. 
All right, with all that in mind, I'm going to ask you four questions. One, have you, first of all, been made new? Because that's like where it starts, like the aha moment of God, debt, me, can't pay, Jesus satisfied it for me. And have you just simply said, yeah, I want in on that. Like, I, I, I believe that. I'm, I want to know that I'm, my debt is canceled, past, present, and future. Okay? Because if not, that's... That's it. Get on the ark, you know? That's the offer of the gospel. It's free. You don't have to do a thing. It's a beautiful thing because you can't do it. You can't do enough. Secondly, are you living in his rhythm of grace or has it been kind of a deal where you go, yep, I'm in and I'll see you in heaven? Are you getting up and offering yourself to him in personal worship and, you know, in doing these kinds of things and committing to it? It's the beginning of the year in a new study. It's a great time to kind of double down and go, you know, Lord, Yes, I need to be involved. I need to, I need to do these things. Thirdly, are you awake or asleep spiritually? And like, how do you know? Because dreams feel pretty real. Like, you know, you might think you're washing dishes and actually you're sitting up in the dark doing weird stuff and waking your husband up and now he's all irritated and moderately actually, just a little bit irritated. Okay, a lot irritated, I'm not going to lie. Just, it was irritating, but it was, I got over it, sort of. That's why I'm still talking about it. So maybe I'm not over it and... How do you know? So I've created some you may be spiritually asleep if statements. Just think about this in the context of the message. You may be spiritually asleep. And I say this because it's rivalry weekend in college football. If you have more enthusiasm for your sports team than you do for God and his mission of renewal. And if you spend more money on it. You may be spiritually asleep if you spend no time praying for God's renewing work in your own life, recognizing humbly that you need that, and in the lives of other people, and in our city, and in our world. You may be spiritually asleep, missionally speaking, if you're more concerned with being right, or being heard, or making your point than you are with the renewal of the person that you're talking with. And I just say that because people are still talking about the election. And I don't think that that's necessarily been great for our ability um, to witness. You may be spiritually asleep, fourthly, if it never occurs to you that the people around you need Jesus, and if you, frankly, just don't really ever think about the reality of the great and final day, either for yourself or for anyone else, you may be spiritually asleep if you're never angered by injustice or moved by suffering or stirred by the kinds of things that stir the heart of God and stirred in such a way as to move you to do more than to say, man, you know, that's a bummer for those people. But instead to awaken to the reality that, well, maybe the Lord is laying that passion on your heart. Maybe he's saying, hey, you know, you may not be the total answer. Maybe you are, depending on what it is, but but I want to use you as part of my answer. I want to use you to do a work of renewal. Lastly, if you may be spiritually asleep if you, if you don't hold all that you have and all that you are with an open hand before the Lord and his plans and his purposes, but instead live, I mean, if you're honest, you know, as though he's not actually going to return and and as though you're the master as opposed to the servant. So, are you awake or asleep spiritually? Last question since it's Advent. What are those things in your life or in this world that you really long to see renewed? And what are you, as an agent of renewal, doing about it? 
Because as followers of a renewing Jesus, all right, between today and that day, which I don't know, it may be today, I don't know when it's going to be. It's kind of part of the point. We're to live as those who are awake to the fact that whenever it is, it's coming. And when it comes, we want to be found faithful and wise. This is wisdom. And forever we'll be glad that we were. Okay? So consider those things, and we'll come to the table together in a moment. Father, thank you, Lord, for your message. We thank you for the one uh, who has not abandoned, instead uh, has come to us. We thank you for Advent and for all that it represents. And we thank you that a day is indeed coming when the longings of all of our hearts will be completely and totally and finally and fully and permanently and eternally utterly renewed and fulfilled and in ways that, are, that go beyond our capacities to imagine. We thank you for the one who has paid our debt, who rescued us from the judgment piece of that day and who will deliver us to the renewal piece of that day. And we pray that you might light a fire under us Advent is the season of light. we got all these candles. That you might light a fire under us to live today and tomorrow and the next day or however many days there are that we either have left in this life before we breathe our last or before you return. You've come once. Let us live as those who are on that mission. Give us the wisdom and the power by which to see ourselves and authentically to live as agents of renewal in a world that needs the renewing power of the gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.